0: Section three, the IQ and the distribution of ability. As we've seen in the binet simon test, and this is true of most subsequent intelligent tests, a variety of very different tasks involving words, numbers, drawings, abstract reasoning, and so on, were used to derive an overall measure of intellectual level. One of Binet's contemporaries, the British psychologist Charles Spearman, argued that this is a valid approach because people who perform well in one set of reasoning tasks, such as processing numbers, also tend to do well on others, such as processing words. Spearman, 1904, suggested that these correlations indicate that there is an underlying factor that underpins performance on all the different tasks that make up an intelligent test. He called this factor general intelligence, commonly, commonly abbreviated to G. The evidence of Spearman's conclusion about the existence of G was not particularly strong. It was based on a study of a small group of boys attending a preparatory school which found that pupils who did well in one set of subjects, such as English or French, also did well in others, such as maths. Nonetheless, the notion of a a singular general intelligence has stuck, and this has been implicit in most intelligence tests since It lies at the core of the concept of IQ, the intelligence quotient, which has become synonymous with the very notion of intelligence. 3.1 Calculating the IQ The IQ, which stands for intelligence quotient, was first proposed in the early 20th century by German psychologist William Stern, you read in section 2.2 that Binet assessed intelligence by looking at a child's mental age in relation to their chronological age. Stern believed that this to be somewhat imprecise. It was difficult to make direct comparisons about intelligence across children of different ages. For example, Stern warned that Stern wanted to find a way of encapsulating intelligence in a single number in such a way that will allow easy easy comparison. This number is the IQ. Stern's formula for calculating IQ involved simply dividing the mental age, as indicated by the test performance, by the chronological age. For example, imagine a case of a four-year-old whose test performance was comparable to that of an average six-year-old. Using Stern's formula, the IQ would be calculated as follows. Six, mental age, Divided by 4, chronological age gives the IQ score of 1.50. However, a few years after Stern put forward this formula, Lewis Terman, the author of the Stanford-Binet test, proposed that the ratio between mental and chronological age, 1.5 in this example, should be multiplied by 100, effectively rounding up the IQ score, in this example, to 150. So Terman's formula goes as follows. IQ equals mental age divided by chronological age times 100. This formula states that IQ equals mental age divided by chronological age multiplied by 100. It means that a child whose mental age is the same as their chronological age would have a score of 100. If the formula is applied to a child with a mental age of 8 and a chronological age of 8, what we have is 8 divided by 8, which equals 1, multiplied by 100, equals 100. Therefore, a score of 100 at any age would indicate average performance. Any score above 100 indicates that a child demonstrates above-average intelligence for its age group. Mental age is higher than chronological age while any score below 100 suggests that the child is lagging behind its peers. Going back to the example which we looked at in section 2.2, a three-year-old whose performance was comparable to that of a four-year-old would be said to have a mental age of four and an IQ of 133. That is, 4 divided by 3 times 100 equals 133. While a five-year-old with the same performance on an intelligent test, and therefore the same mental age, would obtain the IQ score of 80, 4 divided by 5 times 100 equals 80. The main advantage of this formula is that, unlike Stern's original one, it produces whole numbers without decimal points, while still making it easy to compare the intelligence of children regardless of age. Although there is a tentative link between the concept of IQ and Binet's idea of comparing a child's mental age and chronological age, it should be pointed out that Binet was vehemently opposed to the use of IQ as a measure of intelligence. He feared that IQ makes intelligence testing and measurement seem a lot more precise than it actually was, and that it leads people to accept that human abilities can be reduced to a single score. Also, for Binet, intelligence testing was useful only as a rough diagnostic tool for identifying children with special needs. He did not believe that it should be used for ranking all children in terms of ability. Finally, he believed that the popularization of IQ as a measure of intelligence makes intelligence seem like a fixed inborn quality rather than something that can be changed through education. As you you will see in Chapter 2, developments in intelligence testing after Binet's death demonstrate that he was right on all three counts. One thing you may have noticed is that Terman's formula for calculating IQ is derived from the tests developed for children. The ratio between mental and chronological age is relevant only during the period of of development when age is closely correlated with the ability to perform mental tasks. Most children, unlike adults, naturally get better at reasoning tasks as they get older. In most adults, the notion of mental age holds very little value. Although IQ tends to change throughout a lifetime, the standards for assessing a 40-year-old and a 30-year-old, for example, are the same. So how is IQ calculated for adults? To answer this question, it is necessary to introduce the concept of normal distribution. Normal distribution, sorry, excuse me, 3.2 Normal distribution of intelligence. Normal distribution refers to the assumption that human characteristics, which vary between people, including things like height and shoe size, but also some specific abilities, such as the capacity to remember a string of random numbers, will be distributed in a population, for example, children of the same age, people of the same gender, or citizens of the same country, in such a way that values at or close to, the average will occur more frequently than extreme ones. For example, if the average shoe size for men in the UK is 9, we can assume that most people will require shoes within a size or two of that number. While while the very small or very large sizes, 6 or 12 for example, will be comparatively rare among men in the UK. In fact, the more extreme the size, the rarer it will be in the population. Knowing that, sometime, knowing, knowing that something is normally distributed can be very useful. Shoe manufacturers and retail, retailers, for example, use it to estimate the demand for different sizes and plan their stock. One of the fundamental assumptions of intelligence measurement is that intelligence too is norm, normally normally distributed. That most people's score will be close to the average and fewer people will have more extreme scores. Represented graphically, normal distribution looks like a bell, which is why it is sometimes referred to as the bell curve. See figure 1.4. The first thing to note is that the horizontal line above, across the bottom of the graph, known as the x-axis, displays the range of IQ scores ranging from 40 to 160. The vertical line on the left of the graph, the y-axis, represents the frequency with which each score occurs in the population. As you can see, the curve rises with with the IQ score up until the midpoint, the IQ IQ score of 100, and then descends again. This means that the IQ, IQ scores of around 100 are the most common in the population, and that the further away a score is from the average, the less likely it is to occur. Note that in IQ measurement, the score at which the bell curve reaches the highest point is always 100. As you read in section 3.1, according to Terman's formula for calculating IQ in children, 100 denotes the norm, the average, regardless of age. In adult tests, the same number is used to represent average intelligence, so there is nothing magical about the number 100 it is simply a convenient figure for representing scores above the norm, higher than 100, or below the norm, lower than 100. Also, because all IQ tests are 100, excuse me, also because all tests use IQ as 100 as, as the mean, scores can be easily compared across different tests. In addition to setting the average score, the top of the curve at 100, there is is a further assumption about IQ tests that follows directly from the precise shape of the bell curve. You can see this in figure 1.5. The shape of the curve indicates that just over two thirds of people within a population, 68.3% to be more precise, will have an IQ score between 85 and 115. and that just over 95% of the population will have an IQ score between 70 and 130. By extension, fewer than 1 in 40 people, 2.3%, will have an IQ score lower than 70 and the same proportion will have an IQ score higher than 130. The assumption that intelligence is normally distributed is enshrined in the design of IQ tests. when new tests are created or existing ones updated items are selected and the scoring calibrated and modified so that the average score is 100 and the distribution of scores resembles the bell curve with its distinctive symmetrical shape (coughs) conceptualizing intelligence in this way has its distinct advantages one is that as soon as a person's score is calculated it is possible to say where they are placed in relation to, to the population as whole, whether their intelligence is average, whether they are in the top or bottom 5, 10 or 20% of the population. Also, the IQ score is useful for comparing performance across different versions of the IQ tests. But most importantly, the basic concept of IQ is remarkably simple, and its ability to reduce human intelligence to a single number has undoubtedly contributed to its persistence and popularity. When the media report that some historical figure or celebrity had an IQ of 165, this requires little elaboration. Many people, even if they have never studied psychology or seen the bell curve, will understand that this indicates high intelligence and points to rare genius. However, it is important to bear in mind that the idea of intelligence is n- the idea that intelligence is normally distributed in the precise way way implied by the bell curve has never actually been demonstrated. It is no more than an assumption put forward f- by Galton in the 19th century. Galton's thinking was guided by evidence from medical records that things like height, chest size, height and chest size were normally distributed. He simply assumed that what would be true of physical properties would also apply to intellectual abilities. This supposition was later endorsed by other researchers and practitioners and has remained the fundamental, albeit untested, assumption in intelligence measurement built into each and every intelligence test. This is why the IQ score should never be seen as an absolute measure of intelligence. It is simply an indication of how a person's performance at a set of tasks compares to the norms thought to apply to the population with which they belong. Summary, intelligence testing is based on the assumption that performance on a range of reasoning and problem solving tasks is underpinned by an underlying factor, namely intelligence. IQ, or intelligence quotient, is a way of expressing numerically how a person's performance on a set of tasks in an intelligence test compares to the norms thought to apply to the population with which they belong. IQ tests are designed so that values at or close to the average will occur more frequently than extreme ones. This is called normal distribution. The score of 100 always represents the average on an IQ test.